Well, good morning, church family. What a joy it is to gather this morning to worship the living God. Let's stand as we open and worship. Worthy of all our praises, Hosea. 
Family Fellowship, I'd like to extend a welcome to you if you're a visitor here this morning with us. We are thrilled that you have chosen to join us this morning in worship to uh, our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we hope that as you're gathered with us that you will see him high and lifted up and be drawn to know him, to trust him, to meet with him. So we have a beautiful privilege this morning of taking the Lord's Supper together and partaking of this this picture of what Jesus, in a very real fashion, as he gave his body and shed his blood in order to pay for our sins, to make us right before God, that we can know him, that we can be forgiven, and that we can have the promise of life eternally with him because of what he has done because of his very real body and blood that was shed. And so, I'd like to welcome you here. If you're a visitor, there should be a card right in front of you, in the pew in front of you. If you wouldn't mind picking that up, 
and filling that out and dropping that in the offering basket that are on the back walls this morning. As you're offering to us, share a little information with us that we can pray for you, reach out to you, see if there's anything we can do uh, for you, or if you have any questions or prayer requests, that's also a, a tool for that uh, that should have a little section on that card if you would want to share those with us, that should be there. So after our, our time together, we'll be having a business meeting, and so if you're a member of Faith Family Fellowship, I encourage you to hang around for a few moments, and we'll have a brief business meeting talking about uh, the land right next to us and what's going on there, giving you an update about those things, and moving forward, uh, what we need to do. And so that will occur right after our gathering here this morning. And uh, also next Sunday night, uh, if you're a volunteer in the preschool ministry, children's ministry, student ministry, all of it, uh, we will have a time of training, a time of orientation, a time together next Sunday evening. And so just want to further put that in your mind, uh, that that will be next Sunday evening, and hope you'll plan to join us and be with us. And if you're not involved at all, but are considering, would like to see some of the things happening, some of the changes, different things like that, please come and uh, join us next Sunday evening. All right? So we've been memorizing scripture, and we are memorizing together a few verses from Exodus. So let's recite those verses. Yes, that's it. Okay, so, um, sorry, uh, the, the, the verses, the words that God utters is what we've been memorizing. So those first few words threw me off, sorry. So let's, uh, let's recite it all because it's within, in these verses, of um, God's word and expression of himself, who he is in his character. So if you would, read with me out loud. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children. To the third and fourth generation. Exodus 33, 34, 6 and 7. Mess that up. That's a long one. So this is Moses. As Moses asked, God, who are you? Will you show me who you are? And so as God reveals his glory to him, this is the utterance. This is the testimony of the character of God of who he is. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. The name of God that expresses his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to his people. This is the Lord who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So this is the great God we serve and who we are gathered around. So let's pray and also Today is September 11th, and so I want to encourage you as we pray, well, let's have, a, let's have a time of prayer. If you want to come forward and pray, let's spend a few moments in prayer, uh, praying over the Lord, who he is, but also over our country, over those who, who serve our country, uh, those who have lost loved ones uh, because of September 11th, and just want to encourage you, and just let's pray. Let's spend a few moments in prayer. 
and then we'll continue in uh, in song. Okay. Father, you tell us to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people, and especially for those in governmental leadership, for kings and in high positions. If we are to pray for them, we are to take them to you and ask that, God, you would direct their hearts, that, God, you would provide for them in their places of leadership, and that, God, you would be with those governing authorities, that they would be brought in submission to you. And so, Lord, we ask that, God, you would do that. We ask that, Lord, our, our government, our nation, the many people that serve in the government, thank you for them. Thank you, God, for the men and women who are here among our congregation who serve in some form or fashion within the governing bodies, Lord. God, I ask you to use them for your glory in those places. That, God, they would be light. That, God, they would be salt of your kingdom. With those they rub elbows with, work with, and they serve day in and day out. That, God, they would represent you well. And that you would use them, God. Lord, would you be with those families who have lost loved ones, not only in September 11th, but throughout um, serving this country, that God, that Lord, you would be with them, that God, they would recognize your sovereign hand of mercy, that you are steadfast in your love, and that you are kind and merciful, and that your goodness transposed against the evil of this world and the evil of humanity, God. It accentuates both. And so, Father, would you, Lord, would you be with those families? May they see you. May they know you and find peace in you rather than anything they can do. So God, thank you. Thank you for those men and women who serve, those men and women who give their lives to serve this country. And Lord, we ask that God, you would be with us now. That God, as this verse we've recited, describes you, that God, we would see you clearly. In the songs we sing, we would see you clearly. In the scripture that we'll be studying and looking at this morning, that God, you would be exalted. And you, Lord, would be known as you truly are in accordance with your word and in accordance with your character. And so, God, we thank you and ask that, God, you to be with us, you to be glorified, and that, God, you, Lord, would lead us this morning and this week. God, that you would meet needs in a manner that brings you the praise you deserve 
and that is known of your intercession and your work in our lives. And so, God, would you prepare our hearts as we're about to shortly partake of your word and partake of this ordinance, this um, of your table, that, God, our hearts, Lord, we would bring things forward to you in repentance, that we would be renewed by your grace and that god we would be able to partake in a worthy manner your your the lord's table and that god it would be a moment and a time to draw us before you and to recognize the great cost that the atonement of our sin was and is the cost that you have paid so lord thank you and i ask that god you to be with us and direct us to be glorified this morning in jesus name i pray amen amen let's stand as we continue in worship as we sing of our lord you're worthy of worship you're worthy of praise you're worthy of honor, you're worthy of thanks, you're worthy of worship, you're worthy of praise, you're worthy of honor, you're worthy of thanks. Jesus Christ, crucified, led and died to save our lives. Giver of boundless love, faithful one to you we run. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Lord.
Church family, this next song that we're going to do, um, it's one that we haven't done before. This song is called Only a Holy God. Uh, and it just speaks on the holiness of God. Who else commands the hosts of heaven? Who else invites us to call us, invites us to call them Father? Who else would send his only son? Only a holy God. And so the chorus, the chorus, the words say, Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. The only holy God. Forever a holy God. Not in part, not for the time being. He is the one and only true holy God. And he will forever be the one and only true holy God. So let's, let's sing this. The words are going to be on the screen. Um, so pray through these words and if you start to catch on, sing out. Let's do it.
still sinners you send your son you sent your son to die for our sins so that we might be called children of God so that you could adopt us you could choose to love us we were so unworthy or that you would choose to give us this birthright so father thank you for that gift God help us to live worthy of this calling that you have placed on our Father, as Pastor Webb comes and brings the word, God, I pray that you will, you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, that we will leave this building better equipped to be your church. Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to come and worship together. Thank you that we can live in a nation where we are free to worship you. Lord, help us to worship you, not ourselves, not our emotion, but God, you and you alone. Father, we love you and we praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. quick minute to introduce uh, Stephen Webb, who's joining us uh, in the pulpit today. Stephen serves currently as an associate pastor over at Crawford uh, Baptist Church over in Mobile County, and uh, a few of you may remember him from his time serving over at Christ Fellowship, 
his wife, Rachel, uh, the two of them. Uh, she's the, the founder, and I don't know what other title, uh, with Fostering Together Gulf Coast, who we partner with uh, for our foster closet. And so we're excited to have him come and share with us this morning. So please Thank welcome you. Thank you, brother. Well, it is a joy uh, to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, brother Wyatt and I had met uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we had talked about the uh, prospect of, of me uh, coming to fill the pulpit and, and uh, bring a word of encouragement and exhortation uh, to this congregation, and, and it, is, it is a joy uh, to be here with you this morning. Yes, uh, uh, my wife and I, Rachel, we have five children, uh, two of which are biological, three we've adopted, um, and uh, my wife is yeah, founder, executive director of Fostering Together, and as Wyatt mentioned, you know, Fostering Together is near and dear to our heart, and we want to thank you uh, for your partnership um, with us. Uh, our, our goal and, and delight and joy in life is to see the Lord move and work in foster families and within churches in Mobile and Baldwin County along the Gulf Coast. And uh, we are very grateful uh, to have you as, as partners uh, with us in that endeavor. And so, thank you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses in Isaiah. And I've titled this message, A Sobering Encounter with the Holiness of God. And today in our church culture... We need a renewed understanding of the holiness of God more than ever. We live in a culture that has marginalized and has um, just sown into the hearts of people a low view of, of God and his holiness. And there are many churches, if we can even call them churches today, that have preach this low view of Christ, a low view of the holiness and the sovereignty of God. And it has, it has destroyed churches. It has destroyed lives even. And so today, my goal and my delight is to come before you and to give you a re renewed passion and a renewed understanding of what God's holiness looks like and how we as his people are to respond to his holiness. And this morning, I want to read the entire chapter of chapter 6. It's only 13 verses, but to give you a context that this is really Isaiah's calling into the prophetic ministry. And Isaiah 6 is really a, a turning point in this, this long prophecy that the prophet Isaiah gives us. But here's what he writes in chapter 6 and verse 1, and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? He said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth of an oak, or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you again this morning in prayer, just asking your blessing over our time in your word today. Lord, I thank you for this congregation ones whom you have called out of darkness and into your light. And I pray this morning that you would have us give you our mind's attention and our heart's affection as we look into these verses and as we unpack the truth about your holiness, the truth about your sovereignty, the truth about who you are and who you have called us to be as your people. Father, we love you. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for us so that we might be made right with you. So, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We pray your blessing. For it's in Christ's name. Amen. So in chapter 1, first I want to look at the dilemma facing Judah. The dilemma facing the tribe and really the southern nation of Judah. In verse 1 it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. What we have to understand about King Uzziah is that this was approximately in the year 739 B.C. And the place was Jerusalem. The death of Uzziah was an evident turning point in Judah's history and a new chapter in Isaiah's ministry. Uzziah became king at age 16, and he reigned for 52 years. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 4, it says that he did right in God's eyes. And during the days of Zechariah, he continued to seek the Lord. Under his reign, there were military victories. There was prosperity and commerce. There was economic stability and and national security, but pride and self-reliance became his undoing. In 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16 and following, it says that his heart became proud 
and he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to Yahweh his God. And while on a foolish undertaking, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And this was a duty only to be performed by the priest. And after Uzziah entered Azariah along with 80 additional priests who opposed him and warned him not to dishonor the Lord, Uzziah held the censer of incense and leprosy broke out on his forehead. And at that moment, Uzziah was cut off from worship and was a leper to the day of his death. This was a a season of humiliation for both the priesthood and for Judah. And it was in these uncertain times that Isaiah sought the Lord for strength, comfort, and direction for the future. And this is how God works in our lives, is it not? Many times God uses dilemmas or calamities to draw us closer to him. It is in times of adversity that we often seek the Lord with a greater desperation, more than in times of affluence and ease. And this morning, can you identify with Isaiah? At some point in your life, have you faced trial or tribulation or difficulty where you have gone before the throne of grace and pled for God to move and act in a mighty way? I would say if you've lived long enough that you have, amen? And so whatever dilemma you may be facing, be it financial, health, family, career, I pray that God would use those times of struggle and challenge to draw you closer to him. James 1 verses 2 through 4 talks about, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that term various means multifaceted, right? It means multicolored, like a prism. Consider it joy when you face all kinds of trials. And you're like, Stephen, consider it joy? I'm, I'm to consider my, 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 my trials and my difficulty as joy? And I tell you, Yes. Embrace those trials, embrace those difficulties because it's in those storms of life that God begins to move and draw you close to him. Because we see the error of Uzziah. As he had affluence and ease and prosperity, his heart moved away from the Lord. It's amazing what we see in church history. It's amazing what we see in our current culture around the world that in parts of the world such as Iran where the church is persecuted and there are there are people being put to death for proclaiming the name of Christ that house churches are popping up left and right I heard one report a few months ago that there's over 55,000 house churches in Iran and they don't know how to stop it and it's like the more you persecute the church the more you press against the church What's going to happen? It's going to grow. I believe it was Tertullian that said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you press it, the more you persecute it, the more you challenge it, the more it will grow. But the problem we face in America is we've been left alone. We have too much freedom. We have collapsed under our own weight. Do you see that? 
Have you seen the liberalism in our seminaries? Have you seen the liberalism flourish in our in churches that are no longer considered churches? Persecution refines. Persecution weeds out the faults. He weeds out the, the Osteens and the prosperity preachers of the church. Because those who are willing to die for what they believe in, that's what's going to endure. And so today, this is why I come before you to present a high view of God and a high view of his holiness. And so secondly, as we looked at the dilemma facing Israel, the facing Judah and Jerusalem, secondly, I want us to look at the presentation of God's holiness in the second part of verse 1 through verse 3. The context isn't explicit, but we can assume that Isaiah entered the temple to seek the Lord. That would, that would be a reasonable conclusion. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. We would assume that he is seeking the Lord after Uzziah's death, for he didn't know where to turn. But what transpired in this Temple vision was a life-altering vision of God's holiness. Isaiah saw the Lord like he had never seen him before. He saw God to be greater than he could have ever imagined. It was an account where Isaiah came face to face with the majestic holiness of Yahweh. Isaiah's account says that he, he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. Now we understand this to be a vision or an oracle where, where Isaiah was likely in a, a trance uh, because we understand that in encounters with Moses that if we see the Lord in our current state that we would be incinerated. We couldn't live because of God's holiness and our sin. There's this gap, there's this chasm fixed where we cannot enter into his presence as we are. But Christ. And I'll stop there. So, first, we see in this presentation the transcendence of the Lord. And what transcendence means is that He is, he is above, he is, he is separate, He is lofty, He is greater. And this is what He says, I saw the Lord, Adonai, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And so in the year of Uzziah's death, Isaiah was permitted to see the true king of Israel. The name or title for God in this verse is Adonai, which translates to mean Lord or Master. It carries the idea of one being a sovereign ruler. And with Uzziah dead and out of the picture, God reassures Isaiah that he is still in control. Isaiah was allowed to see God seated on the throne. It may have felt as if the throne of Israel was vacated and that there was a void left, but God reassures Isaiah that he is still on his throne. And we can have that same confidence. No matter who's in office, no no matter who's 
in representing us, no matter who's in the White House, God is still on his throne. And he is sovereign ruler over all things. But Isaiah, he saw the throne occupied where God was seated. Positionally, positionally, God is actively reigning and sovereignly ruling over all things. All things. Throughout the epistles, Paul speaks of, of Christ in Colossians reigning and ruling over all things, being, all things being upheld by the word of his power. In Psalm 103, 19, it says, The Lord establishes throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Isaiah also saw God's throne lofty and exalted. He sees it elevated above all rule and power, both in heaven and on earth. This tells us that God is is most excellent and that he is preeminent, that he bows to no one. And he rules over all kings, kingdoms, powers, and authorities. This description of God reaffirms the point made in chapter 2, verse 11, that God is and will be high and exalted, and that man should humble himself before the Lord. And as Isaiah gazes upon the Lord, he can't help but notice the train of his robe. The train of his robe fills the temple. Now, many of you have have seen coronations, you've lived long enough to to see these magnificent weddings um, where these trains are really long and magnificent and beautiful. And and, and in essence, that was was a a picture of of, of power and authority. And in essence, this is is a panoramic picture of, of God's unrivaled splendor. And majesty. And in antiquity, years, years and years ago, a king's greatness or a queen's greatness was measured by the size of his royal robe, how long it was, how full it was, how puffy it was, or whatever the case may be. It was a, it was a sign of grandstanding. But in Psalm 93, here's what the psalmist writes. In verse 1, he says, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And though these verses and psalms do not mention a robe, they testify that God is, is clothed with splendor and majesty. And we get a picture inside the throne room as we see and have a visual image of what Isaiah is looking at. That the train of the robe, God sitting upon the throne, fills the temple. That it is greater than we can imagine. And this picture that Isaiah paints, it strikes both awe and terror into one's heart because this is, this is outside of human comprehension. This is outside of our experience. We can't understand this because the the greatest thing we've ever seen has really been part of creation. We haven't experienced and seen the supernatural 
effects of God as being unveiled like the Mount of Transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John ascend to this mount and Jesus reveals himself in his splendor and his majesty and pulls the veil back to show his glory, what happens? Fall on their face. What happens to Moses when he encounters the holiness of God? He falls on his face. There's something about seeing God and then falling prostrate on the ground. I'm not worthy. This is beyond our experience. This is beyond our comprehension. In reading this, I I feel that Isaiah has this feeling that he has come a little too close to the fire. That he has come a little too close to the majesty and the glory of God. What Isaiah is seeing, I believe, is the inner sanctum of the heavenly tabernacle. While Isaiah was enthralled by this vision of God, he sees above a throne, a sight beyond extraordinary. Secondly, in, in this presentation of God's holiness, we see the attendants surrounding the throne. In verse 2, it says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Isaiah sees that, that, that the God of heaven is attended by this angelic court. These seraphim were a unique type of angelic beings who would participate in the worship of Yahweh. The word seraphim translates to mean burning ones, ones who are aflame. And there's no telling how many seraphim were situated around the throne, but because that word seraphim is plural, but their purpose was to actively worship God with intense zeal and fervor as one commentator had said. It is possible that these seraphs had some connection to the cherubim in Ezekiel's two visions of God's glory. And I encourage you to go look later on today at, at that view of Ezekiel. That is, that is a wild um, portion of Scripture. Uh, it'll literally have your, your mind turning and contorting in ways that uh, it's like, how does that work? Um, but it is incredible. But it's like the cherubim in Ezekiel. The seraphs have hands and faces and feet and wings. But in contrast to, but in contrast to Isaiah's seraphs, each living creature in Ezekiel chapter 1 had four faces and was located under the throne of God in order to move it from place to place. These could also be the, attend- the attendants mentioned in Daniel 7. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and hair like the head of pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Wheels were burning fire, a river of fire flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. What is most important is what the seraphs did with their wings and with the words they spoke. Each of these angelic beings had six wings, with a face, a mouth, and with two feet. The first two wings were used to cover their faces, 
This was to shield their eyes from the direct glory of God. Though they were sinless beings, they could not stand to look upon the full glory of God. They are yet but creation, creations of his. The second set of wings were for the purpose of covering their feet. These angelic beings were part of the created order in Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, they were subordinate to their creator. And in humility and unworthiness before God, they covered their feet. And this scene reminds us of God commanding Moses to remove his sandals as he would approach the holy ground around the burning bush. And the last set of wings described by Isaiah was for flight. And so what I love about Scripture is we always read about God providing for his creation what he demands of them. He demanded that they cover their faces and he provided a set of wings for that. He demanded that they cover their feet and he provided a set for that. Then they flew to attend him. And in the same way, as God expects perfect holiness, as God expects perfect righteousness from us, which we can never produce on our own, he gives us his son who died in our place to live the life we could never live and to die the death that we deserved so that he would supply what he demanded from us as we live in faith in Christ. Thirdly, in this presentation of God's holiness, we see the seraph's song, the seraphim's song. In verse 3, it says, And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The most important thing about these creatures was not their appearance, but the purpose of or the purpose of their wings, or the the fact that they could fly. They are to be known for their simple declarations of the holiness of God. Back and forth, they would declare to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They were created solely to offer ceaseless praise to their creator. And this word holy is, is, is really the sum and the substance of who and what God is. In the song of Moses in Exodus 15, he says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel in the Lord's crown. Sam Storms, a contemporary theologian, defines holiness as being, he says, the holiness of God is only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It's primary, uh, excuse me, it primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendently separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like the grace or power or knowledge or wrath Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. 
simply that God does everything perfectly. His love, his mercy, his wrath, his justice, every attribute, every aspect of God and who he is and what he has accomplished is right, it is holy, and it is just. Jerry Bridges says, holiness is the perfection of all God's other attributes. His power, his mercy is holy mercy, his wisdom is holy wisdom. It is his holiness more than any other attribute that makes him worthy of our praise. God is immeasurably and infinitely holy, meaning he is, he is set apart. He is, what, what this what this means, when we see this repetition, the repetition is a literary device in Hebrew ex- expressing an incomparable or incomparable idea that God is holy, holier, holiest. God is holy, he's set apart. Amen? Yes, that is true. God is holier than anything or anyone else. And he is the holiest being there is, period. And as Isaiah is about to enter this prophetic office that God has called him to, he needed this high and holy view of God to carry and encourage him in his ministry. And by way of application, if we desire to be useful in God's service, we must have a heightened awareness of his greatness. Like Isaiah, we need to encounter the living God. We must grow in the knowledge of God so that our lives can be effective in our service to him. In reality, if we try to do ministry, if we try to parent, if we try to do anything, our vocation apart from God's help, we are but spinning our wheels and striving after the wind. We are called to do everything for the glory of God. We are called to do everything with his holiness in mind. And guess what? I fail at that every day. And I guarantee you do as well. Because none of us have reached perfection. None of us have reached a place in our lives where we have become perfect. Yet there's a coming day, there's a coming day, amen, that we will be made like him that we will rejoice with him in the heavenlies and we will be with Christ and we will be with our God for eternity. But until that day, as we can relate to Paul, we still struggle. For the very thing that I don't want to do, I do. The very thing that I want to do, I don't do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, as we see in Romans 7, that it is Christ And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can rejoice in that. But until that day comes when we are called to glory, either through death or by his second coming, we will still struggle. We will still wrestle with the flesh. We will still contend. And we will need him. And this is the same same is true with Isaiah. He needed the Lord to fulfill his prophetic office and he needed a high view of God. And I believe that those who are most mightily used by God are those who are growing 
continuing to grow to see the awesomeness of their God. You can't have a low view of God and accomplish much for him. We must have a high view of our Lord. We must have, if you will, a big God theology. Third third main heading is we see this commotion in Yahweh's presence. We see the presentation of his holiness. Now we see this this commotion in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The house was filled with smoke. And with the holiness of God on display, we see the concussive power of the seraphim's song as it causes the foundations of the temple to shake. Foundations of the heavenly temple were were shaking as if an earthquake were, were taking place. Back in like 2005 to 2008, I lived out in Los Angeles, California. As many of you know, there's a lot of earthquakes that happen along the San Andreas Fault. And I guess Rachel and I were newly married and uh, we were laying in bed one night. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, just things just started shaking. Whoa, what is going on? Car alarms going off, like commotion, all this craziness. It felt like literally a truck had hit the building. And for a moment there, we were kind of shaken and literally and figuratively. Uh, what just happened? I was growing up in Alabama, like I'd never experienced an earthquake like that. I'd never had that experience before. And so I imagine as, as we kind of place in our minds for a minute the foundations of a building shaking. That's what Isaiah was experiencing in this vision. It was not, it was the cause of this shaking, I believe, is, is this blasting, the blasting voices of the seraphim. But not only was there this violent rumbling, but smoke began to fill the temple. Now again, smoke is, is a unique uh, event in the Bible, um, Smoke was a manifestation of God's presence. In Exodus 19 and verse 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was, was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. In the wilderness, in Exodus 13, verse 21, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on their way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. At the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke 9, verse 34 through 35, it says, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so I have a question for you. If the smoke represents the Father, who's on the throne? I just want to take a wild guess. I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus is there in this vision, seated upon the throne with his 
robe filling the temple and then smoke descends. And we see that continuity of how God reveals himself in the scripture, not just in the Old, but also in the New Testament. And we see two of the three persons of the Trinity in Isaiah chapter 6. By way of application, I, I believe that it's because of this that we see this commotion of presence in, in God's presence that we must have a healthy and a holy fear of God. This type of fear is synonymous with awe and with reverence. Scripture is full of examples. It says, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 2-13 says, the conclusion when all has been heard is to fear God and to keep his commandments. A couple of New Testament references. First Peter 1.17, if you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And then in 2 Corinthians 7.1, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Not having become perfect, but perfecting, working towards. And again, the scripture teaches us, Paul tells us to work out, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not to work for our salvation, but to work out what God has worked in. And so it's, it's, it's to do so with fear and trembling. And that word that Paul uses is the word phobos, which we get the word phobia but not in a sense that we're afraid of God, but we revere him, we respect him, we honor him. In the same way that we have a fear, or we should have a fear of our parents, that when they spoke, they meant business. When they told you to jump, you asked how high. They wanted nickels, you better have some in your hand. You know, it's one of those things. You, you revere those you respect. You honor those you respect. And so, let us not be so content. Let us not become so at ease with with grace that we lose the reverential awe of God. Because I believe that we have come to a place in church history, I believe we've come to a place in the Western church that we we have become so at ease with where we are, that we're comfortable, we're content. And that's a dangerous place to be. If you read, just read the book of Judges. I'm sure you have, but it's like a roller coaster. Israel does really well, and things are going great. Boom, they fall off the wagon. God sends a judge. A lot of people die. They repent. The remnant comes back. They're back in good standing with the Lord. They fall off again. And it's just as soon as things get easy and they get comfortable, they fall off the wagon. 
They lose sight of God. They lose sight of his holiness. They lose sight of the wilderness wanderings. They lose sight of all that God has done for them. That's why over and over in the Psalms, over and over in in the history of Israel, God reminds them of where they came from and how he delivered them. Church, let us not forget how God delivered us. Let us not forget about God's grace and his mercy and his goodness. From not where he saved us, but from what he saved us from. When we really dig deep, you know who he saved us from? He saved us from himself. Because his wrath was burning against us. His anger was against us. But in love, he sent his son to be the substitute. So instead of killing us, he killed his son. So that we could have eternal life with him. That's that great exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. Christ gets the worst of me and I get the best of Christ. And when God looks at me, he sees me as forensically justified. Why? Because of my work? Because of Christ's work on the cross. Because of his active and passive obedience in his life and in his death. We have his righteousness because of the cross. It's called the doctrine of imputation. Our sin was imputed to his account and his righteousness was imputed to our account. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his grace and his mercy. So let us not be content with those truths alone, but let us press into those truths and learn what it actually cost so that we could be made right with our Father. Fourthly, in verse 5, we see Isaiah's anguish when in in the presence of God. In verse 5, if you look with me, it says, "And, And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah witnesses the glorious scene before him, he became painfully aware of both his personal sins and Israel's sins as a nation. And he says, woe is me. Isaiah had been exposed to the holiness of God. And now he is convicted of his sin. One commentator said, such confrontation cannot help but produce despair. For the finite, the mortal, the incomplete the fallible to encounter the infinite, the eternal, the self-consistent, and the infallible is to know futility and the hopelessness of one's existence. Apart from Christ, our existence is futile. 
Solomon calls it striving after the wind. Vanity of vanities. But in Christ, our existence has meaning and purpose. This is why he said, woe is me. And to pronounce woe on someone or something means to curse, to judge, or condemn. And as Isaiah beholds the glory of God, he feels the weight of divine judgment his sin demands. Francis Schaeffer used to always talk. He, was, he, was, he lived around the 1960s and 70s. And I've read much of his works, but he, one of his famous quotes, one of his famous teachings was, as we share the gospel with someone, we want to get them below the line of despair. We want to share, yes, God's goodness and his grace and his love and his mercy, but we also want to share about his wrath, his judgment towards sin, the consequences of sin. And so then when they get below that line of despair, we swoop in with the glorious truths of the gospel and have them cling to that only. The problem is sometimes we, here in the South, sometimes we have to convince someone that they're lost before they can ever truly be saved. Sometimes we have to really drill in deep. Well, I'm a Christian. I did that. I was baptized when I was, you know, three years old or whatever. I was baptized at vacation Bible school and, you know, I said the prayer and I signed the card. I shook the pastor's hand. I went down in the water. That means nothing apart from a true, saving, regenerative relationship with Christ. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said. You must be born again. Like, that's a demand from Christ. You must be born again. And that doesn't happen on your own efforts. How many in here chose to be born? Exactly. Same is true with the new birth. It's the Spirit of God that does it. It's the Spirit of God that quickens your heart, who regenerates your heart and gives you spiritual life so that then, as you're awakened, you can respond to the gospel that is presented. This is what happened with Isaiah. He fell below the line of despair. He saw his sinfulness. He saw his brokenness. And he said, woe is me. I am condemned. I am lost. I am cursed. I am judged before the weight of my sin because of who I am looking at. I am not worthy. For you and me today, in our sin, we are not worthy. And in a little while, we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And truly, church, we are not worthy to take this, but Christ makes us worthy. It is in Christ alone that makes us worthy to take of these elements, to identify with him in his death and in his resurrection, so that we can experience the fullness of life that only he can give to us. And what's amazing in this, in this text, if you read Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, he, he says, woe is you. So many times he's judging the nation of Israel. He's judging the nation of Judah. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. Cursed, judged, condemned. And then he sees God and guess what he says? Hold up, woe is me. Church, we've got to judge ourselves. The Word of God is like a mirror. We read it, 
As we study it, it reveals truths about us. Sometimes we don't like. Sometimes we don't want to deal with. But when that conviction comes, that's an opportunity to repent. That is God's grace that he reveals those, those things to you. He reveals your inadequacies. He reveals your sins. He shows you where you fall short. That is God's grace to you. Repent. Confess your sins. He feels the weight of judgment because he notices his condition before a holy God. He says, for I am ruined I am ruined, meaning I am undone, I am irreparable, I am hopeless. Now sometimes, church, I'll be honest with you, I'll get dressed in the dark. That's an error. And I'll walk out of our house, collar up, things tucked in, things untucked, shoes, you know, not right, socks you know, unmatching, I'm a mess. And many times I say, when somebody says, hey man, your collar's messed up, I was like, I got out of the house without Rachel looking at me first. I need the Holy Spirit Junior to look at me and say, okay, that's, that's good. You're acceptable, you can now go out in public. Um, she's laughing because she knows it's true. But the truth is, for us, church, just imagine We are getting dressed in the dark. Pull up our pants, put on our shirt, whatever. Ladies, the same way. And you walk out and you realize, man, you come into the light and your clothes are tattered. The seams are coming apart. There's holes in your shirt. There's holes in your jacket. There's patches everywhere. And your clothes are tattered. If you're in the dark, you don't realize that, do you? You don't know that there's a problem. But once you step into the light, not only can you see it, whoa, you're embarrassed. Try to hide yourself because of your tattered clothes. Just imagine for a moment, you stand not only into the light, but you stand in front of the best-dressed person you've ever seen. Not worthy to be in your presence. Not worthy to look upon you. Just imagine us now in our sin, standing before a holy God. We can't stand anymore. Isaiah says, for I am ruined. The light of God's holiness has revealed the darkness of his heart. Isaiah is excruciatingly aware of his filthy condition before the Lord, that he is a man of unclean lips and a defiled heart and a polluted life. Jesus clarifies the problem in the New Testament when he says in Matthew 15, 11, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles a man. It's not what you eat that defiles you, but it's what that proceeds from your heart and your mouth that defiles you. He made that statement to the Jews because they were so concerned about what they ate but not what came out of their mouth. 
Now, Isaiah understands this. He understands that he lives also among a people of unclean lips. We today are a people of unclean lips. We today live among a people of unclean lips. Is this not true? Is this not true? If you work in the secular world, unless you are surrounded by believers that have a high view of God, you live and work among people with unclean lips. And after Isaiah addressed himself, he then addressed the nation. The people of Israel are unclean. They have defiled hearts. They have polluted lives. The reality is that no one stands innocent before a blam- innocent or blameless before God. Isaiah says this. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Seeing the holiness of God, he sees his own wickedness. When seeing this glorious vision of God, he then understands the depths of corruption of not only his depravity, but also the corruption and depravity of Israel. Christian, one who is born again, confession must be a consistent part of your life. Confess our sins before God is to agree with God about our sins. It is to identify our sin before God, to state our sin before God, and to take responsibility for your sin. And the promise we have in 1 John 1, 9 is one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you desire to be clean? Don't you desire to be cleansed? No, I do. I know many of you desire that. By way of illustration, boys, I apologize. Children don't understand that they stink, do they? Right? They don't understand at times that they smell bad. But there is a day coming, right, that they understand that my odor is an offense. And I need to be cleansed. I smell bad. I need a shower. Praise God. Right? I smell bad. I need deodorant. Amen. Yes. We were at that point with our boys, and I'm very thankful for that. That they're aware enough to say, you know what? I need this now. I need this. And as a mature believer, we should say, I need confession. I need discipleship. I need someone to hold me accountable. I need to repent of my sins and stop living the way I used to live and stop pursuing the things that dishonor God. I need this. And once you understand that you need it, you're an about face from that and you're walking in this direction. The problem is, is we become lazy and content and we become very slothful in our own awareness of what's going on and our life becomes a stench. Now for the unbeliever, 
can't judge them. They're already in their sin. Our job is to rescue them out of the darkness. Our job is to preach the full counsel of God's word, let the Holy Spirit do the work, and then, gotcha, we're going to disciple you, we're going we're gonna to encourage you, we're going to bring you along. That's what making disciples is. You make them, you mark them through baptism, and you mature them, right? That's what we're called to do as a church. That promise we have in 1 John 1, 9 is critical. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hold on to that. Memorize that. Remember that on a daily basis. And then lastly, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah's purification. And it was in this moment of confession that Isaiah experienced God's mercy and grace. This is a complicated passage, but I believe it communicates something very profound. In verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim flew with me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And so Immediately after this confession, the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a coal, burning coal in his hand. Isaiah, along with Israel, were deserving God's wrath and judgment for their sin. For one sin, right, we agree, one sin is enough to incur the fury, to incur the fury of God's unmitigated wrath and justice. Genesis 2, 17. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. One sin. The soul that sins will surely die. Ezekiel 18, 4. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. That's a constant theme throughout Scripture that if you sin, you will die. But we see God's mercy. Amen? In verse 7, it says... He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And so from the altar, this seraph took a burning coal, and he touched Isaiah's mouth. And this touch was not to incinerate, but rather, what? To show mercy. In God's presence, Isaiah could have been evaporated, just instantaneously destroyed. But instead, God showed his mercy and his grace. It is here where Isaiah received what he did not deserve. We must remember that this was Isaiah's calling into the prophetic ministry. This burning coal was symbolic of the cleansing and the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. How do we make that connection? We make that connection because, one, it's symbolism, right? It's, it's something that, that we see in the text. It says that it's touched your mouth, till it's touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The only way that our sin can be atoned for, as Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But this was to show how God prepares a people for his own possession. 
It shows how he purifies and he cleanses a person so that the Spirit of God could dwell within them. Not only do we have an imputed righteousness, but we also have an imputed spirit that lives within us, that we are vessels for the Holy Spirit. Peter says that you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. Why? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How does that happen? First, you have to be cleansed. First, there has to be an atonement, and that happened on the cross. Second, the Spirit has to regenerate. And after regeneration comes faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are both gifts that God gives us. And this morning, I know I have no authority here in this church, but just by way of encouragement, as we're about to take the Lord's table, now is a time to do introspection. Now is a time to do business in your heart and in your mind. Now is a time, as you have read with me and listen to me through this text. We understand we're about to come before this table and remember the sacrifice that Christ made for you and for me. Let us not come to this table in an unworthy manner. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that many who are polluting the Lord's table are sick and dying there are consequences for taking this table in an unworthy manner. Please don't do that this morning. Come to this table having confessed your sins, having believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and having full hope in him. And so this morning my prayer is, is that we would have a high view of God's holiness because he has revealed himself to us in such a way that he is worthy. Amen? As our brother sang this morning, he is, he is worthy. What does that word mean, worthy? It's worth it, right? It's worth it. He is worth it. Christ is worthy of our praise and our adoration. So let us pray together. We'll have songs of response. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, we are undeserving. We don't deserve your kindness, your mercy, or your grace. But Lord, you have given it to us in abundance and beyond measure. And Father, we pray that in our time as we partake of the Lord's table, and we would do so in a manner that honors you. We love you, Father. We pray that you would receive a blessing from our time together today, that you would go with us throughout the rest of our week and help us to be lights in this dark world. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name.